1: Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire.
0: The Bowery Boys, Episode 71, Saks Fifth Avenue. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys.
1: Hey. The Bowery Boys is brought to you by Eurocheapo.com. Eurocheapo editors personally visit and review the best-budget hotels in Europe. Now with hotels in New York City. On the web at Eurocheapo.com.
0: Hello there. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. My name is Greg Young.
1: And I'm Tom Myers.
0: Today's show is a little bit of a holiday spin because we are going up Fifth Avenue to one of the swankiest department stores in New York City. That would happen to be, of course, Saks Fifth Avenue.
1: You know, Greg, I think it was about a year ago that we did Macy's. Well, right before Thanksgiving, right? Absolutely right.
0: And, you know, this will have some parallels to it. Well, of course, they're both department stores in New York City. And as we'll find out, they were both at one point in Herald Square together. But Saks went on a slightly different direction than Macy's did. Macy's is sort of, a, I would say, a mainstream department store. Some people would actually
1: say that Saks isn't even a department store at all.
0: It's true. It's mostly clothing with a few extra services and accessories throughout, but its story, uh, it traces not only the history of commerce in New York City, but also the history of Fifth Avenue itself, which we'll look into very briefly.
1: So come along as we check out the story behind Saks Fifth Avenue.
0: Saks Fifth Avenue is in the heart of everything, in the heart of Midtown, Tom. Why don't you set us up a little bit here?
1: Will do. Well, first of all, let's clear up the fact that we're talking about both a store, the Saks Fifth Avenue flagship store, which is on Fifth Avenue between 49th and 50th Street. We're also talking about what would become the chain of stores known as Saks Fifth Avenue. But right now, we're, let's just focus on the store. Primarily,
0: that's what we are concerned with. Right.
1: Where that store came from, where it was before it was on Fifth Avenue. Who were the
0: players involved with it? Yes.
1: Exactly. Today, Saks Fifth Avenue boasts 54 Saks Fifth Avenue stores and an additional 48 Saks Off Fifth stores. So, discount
0: clothing outlet.
1: Exactly. And the Fifth Avenue stores are much more upscale merchandise, like you mentioned in the intro, um, focused really on very nice clothing and not the other kind of sundries that you might find at a department store. You won't find any tea kettles at Saks Fifth Avenue.
0: You won't find any colored bath towels. No, none of that. Okay.
1: Of course, the flagship store is famous for its giant windows that face Fifth Avenue and along the sides on 49th and 50th, especially during the holiday season, and we'll get to that a little bit later, but crowds line up towards St. Patrick's Cathedral as we take in the festive animatronics within.
0: I actually was there uh, this year for the unveiling of the windows, and there were hundreds of people and choirs and singing, and it, it was a big deal. It's always a big deal.
1: Well, since you've already been there then, Greg, this season, why don't you take us inside Saks and give us a quick little virtual tour?
0: Well, just I'll tell you what's on some of the floors. You know, when you walk in, it's really one of the most famous images of Saks because you just have tables and tables. Of jewelry and perfume counters, and like all on the way in the back, you'll they have a little Cartier section, and there's watches and everything. And of course, you know you stroll through, and you know uh, women offer to you know spray you with something, or uh, have you sit down and you know get a consultation and spend hundreds of dollars on mm. meaningless, useless creams and ointments.
1: Some might take issue with that, of course. No, they're not
0: all useless. Um, You can take the escalator or the elevator up to the second and third floor where they have the... These are the big designer women's fashion floors. On the third floor, in fact, they have what is called the Fifth Avenue Club for women which is where if shopping stresses you out and you want some help with it you get some personalized shopping there mm. from consultants and mm. personal shoppers you know i'm sure you do that all the time
1: yes i'm a member of the fifth avenue club
0: <laughs> well up on the fifth floor if those are a little too expensive for you on the fifth floor is more casual women's wear they i think they even sell jeans on the fifth floor um, <laughs> men we have to go when we go there we have to go up to the sixth and seventh floors but tom on the eighth floor is probably the most well-known floor in in Saks. at least it is now it's where all of the high-end shoes it's the sort of carrie bradshaw floor of course, um, yes. as a matter of fact i don't know how they got this but the floor has its own zip code
1: i read about that i think it's it's one of those extension zip codes that you could buy from yeah the post yeah office. it's not and like it's, a, yeah. it actually spells s-h-o-e
0: Yeah. I mean, it's a novelty zip code. Um, On the ninth floor, you can buy some lingerie. And then on the top floor is Salon Z. And that is where you can get clothing for plus size women.
1: Thank you for our own personal shopping tour, Greg. So tell us, Greg, who was Saks?
0: Sachs is, first of all, he was a man who didn't even originally live in New York. His name was Andrew Sachs. He was born in Baltimore in 1847. Uh, He grew up in Philly as a teen. He was in Philadelphia selling newspapers on the street, a very industrious young man. So he ended up saving enough money there, and he moved to Washington, D.C. And then in 1867, that's when he was 20 years old, is when he opened his very first clothing store. It was a men's clothing store, which he called Sacks and Company. I found it funny, by the way, that it was a just-in-men's clothing store, because considering when you walk into Saks, it's like 85% products for women. He opened Saks and Company with his brother, Isidore.
1: Well, maybe when he was 20 years old, he didn't know any women.
0: Well, no. What he wanted to do, I'll tell you why, is because he wanted to dress upscale men. And so, you know, he wanted to dress men in powers in Washington, D.C. Uh So, you know, they're, they're... you know, sure, reg- makes sense. Re- regrettably weren't a lot of women in power, so...
1: Well, somebody had to dress Mary Todd Lincoln. Well, oh, you
0: know, maybe she dressed in men's clothes, like <laughs> Diane Keaton or something.
1: <laughs> that would explain a lot of things. Yes. <laughs>
0: well, anyway, so you yes. know, so Sax is actually the sixth oldest... Existing retailer in our country today. There's only five other companies that are um, that are older. Brooks Brothers, Lord Taylors are older. Macy's is older. But it's a very long-lasting and very respected business, even even back then. So he ended up doing something that was kind of unique for the time, and he branched out into other cities uh-huh. with with this sax, Saxon company. So the first city he went to was Richmond, Virginia. He then went to Indianapolis. Indiana, the brand of Saxon Company would strengthen with each of these moves. And I find it interesting that he went to these size cities. He didn't quite immediately go to New York or Chicago. This might have actually helped in a way of improving the brand because maybe businessmen who lived in those smaller towns would travel and they would look for that Sax name and they, they would know it would be quality menswear.
1: So how did he get to New York?
0: Well, it's interesting. Eventually, he did get here. Well, he, in, in the 1890s, he came to New York to investigate. At that time, in the 1890s, if you were wanted a shop, you were gonna build it at the area called Ladies Mile. We've talked about it several times, I believe, in this podcast. That was a shopping district that was essentially between 14th and 23rd Street.
1: Right. I think we talked about it in the Union Square podcast and, yes, and, a, in little the Macy's. Bit, and a little bit
0: in the Macy's because yes. And so that was I mean, so there was a huge concentration of department stores and other kinds of shops there. That's where he initially looked, but he was also a little bit far thinking. And he
1: also began scouting out a little bit uptown at Herald Square. Sure. And indeed, when he would come to New York then and open up his first store in 1902, it was at Herald Square where he would buy a plot of land and build the store. Also, of course, Macy's had promised to move up uh, to Herald Square as well. Uh-huh. And they did, opening in 1901, just a year before Saks would open. So, Saks's. Property at Harold Square was at the southwest corner of 34th and Sixth Avenue and Broadway. It's a kind of odd-shaped building just across the street, just south of where Macy's is. The building that he built was a seven-story limestone neoclassical structure designed by Buckman and Fox. And again, he decided to only sell clothes. You know, one reason that he stuck to this, even though he had a seven-story building, it's a lot of clothes, was because well, Macy's right across the street was. Selling everything else, so he wanted to differentiate himself a little. bit That's from. that's
0: good. He might as well specialize. And the I even saw mentions of it in like the early New York Times articles. Were they called? Was it called a dry goods house? In fact. But yeah. uh, but it was just clothing. But I'm assuming at this time he branched into women's clothing as well.
1: Yes, and you have to remember that that this area was becoming increasingly popular not just with shops, but also in 1910, Penn Station would open just a block away. Right, and of course that was going to bring an enormous influx of commuters to the area. Now Sixth Avenue also had the Sixth Avenue Elevated Railroad, or the L. And there was a
0: big stop right there at 34th Street, let people off.
1: And let me just say also, let us remember that this 6th Avenue L made the real estate somewhat undesirable, or at least a little bit cheaper along 6th Avenue, because it was kind of dark, it was noisy, it was sooty, it was just kind of gross. So the same year that Penn Station opened, 1910, a new competitor opened just a block south avenue and that's gimbal brothers incorporated gimbal brothers department store opens in 1910 it boasted a subway entrance on the lower level
0: oh so it had a little a leg up on the competition
1: in certain ways and in other ways it had a disadvantage because it also had the highest shoplifting rate of any store in the nation because people were just taking things and darting off onto uh, the platform
0: and you just run down the subway i guess huh
1: Two years later, in 1912, Andrew Sachs died, and his son Horace took over the business. Now, Horace was fine. He was running the store as he should have, but he wanted to go after a slightly more upscale market yet. He
0: wanted to expand his father's dream.
1: And in order to do that, he had to go after a slightly ritzier clientele and go after them where they were, because they weren't really coming around the Herald Square area anymore. They were moving uptown.
0: Well, they were were, on Fifth Avenue, coming I mean, close by but it was worlds different you know that just that one block
1: question here because weren't rich people living on Fifth avenue yes Aren't here's a... I here. well that, from- i think
0: it's time for us to- for just take maybe a little step back, okay. and so and give a little history of like what the heck happened to Fifth Avenue. Why has this become, as has often been said, the most expensive street in the world? Like, why Fifth Avenue? Why? Well, first of all, Tom, you obviously know that Fifth Avenue is basically kind of like the nexus, the spine of Manhattan, because this is where Fifth Avenue divides vertically the eastern streets and the western streets. Right. So, if you were to you know walk up Fifth Avenue and say go to Forty Third Street. If you turn right, it would be 1 East 43rd Street, and you would turn left, it would be 1 West 43rd Street. And that could be very confusing if you're trying to find directions in Midtown, if you don't have the proper directional sign. How Fifth Avenue sort of got associated with the wealthied class, with the fashionable folk, believe it or not, it's like it begins in the beginning of the 19th century and starts where Fifth Avenue starts at Washington Square Park. Now, you know, on the northern end, there are those beautiful rows of houses that are still preserved. And um, that, beca- that was a very fashionable neighborhood at the, you know, at, the st- at the start of the century. There's Fifth Avenue. And so as more and more wealthy people moved into the neighborhood, they kind of moved up Fifth Avenue and kept traveling up Fifth Avenue and up and up and up. In 1836, 5th Avenue had been carved up all the way up until 21st Street and then much further than that it was still in fact it was unpaved roads even wow. up t- and so pre-1850 the residences went up to around Madison Park so around the 23rd area anything past then was kind of seen as a social desert in a way, to even build a house a little further, which you could, but it was, and it wasn't quite farmland anymore, it was being slowly developed, but it was, especially if you were, you know, part of, if you liked to travel in the social circles, you didn't live there until...
1: Because you couldn't Get home late at night because there were no roads going well, to your house. It or? was just
0: a little bit out of the way, and you know. You but just there were streets up there. There were streets, but they just it didn't. They weren't paved. They didn't have paved streets uh, at this time, okay. like but, country roads. But I mean, as not surprisingly, how this changed when the really, really wealthy, when the ones who are making the social decisions in our city, I guess, the Skirmerhorns and the Asters, when they decided to move up to the to that particular neighborhood, the Asters, of course, you know, the Asters and the Waldorf, of course, built their homes on 34th Street and 5th Avenue, and in 1893, of course, that eventually became the Waldorf Astoria. So this kicked the door down for all sorts of people to who had the money to build houses could travel up to Fifth Avenue. So in this period of time, in the in the second half of the nineteenth century, you had you know Boss Tweed was on Forty Third and Fifth, Madame Ristel, who are the famous abortionists I talked about in mm-hmm. the Mary Rogers episode. She was on Fifty Second and Fifth Avenue. Jay Gould was on Forty Seventh and Fifth Avenue. Even Andrew Sachs, his house was on Fifty Eighth and Fifth Avenue, right next to the plaza um 58th and
1: 5th Avenue wasn't that also the Vanderbilt mansion
0: I believe Andrews was around where F.A. of Schwartz is Ah, it's a little bit the yeah, across yeah. the street. In eighteen ninety seven, Domonaco's moved up to Fifth Avenue and Forty Fourth Street. It was such a, a storied place to to live if you you know, if you were wealthy that they didn't even have normal streetcars. They had what was called the Fifth Avenue Coach, which went up and down and would eventually become electrified and would have even double decker buses.
1: I'm kind of surprised them that these residents would let any kind of stores, even fashionable stores, build on their street.
0: Part of what made this change was places like the Waldorf Astoria, when all of a sudden you have residences and they're next to hotels. And those hotels, of course, have restaurants and things in them. Commerce sort of eases into the neighborhood. In 1906 was when the very first department store opened on Fifth Avenue, and it was called B. Altman's. It opened at Fifth Avenue between 34th and 35th Street, right across the street from the Waldorf Astoria.
1: The store, owned by, of course, Benjamin Altman, was originally over on 6th Avenue. So, I guess he had been really one of the first to make the jump from 6th over, over to 5th. Fifth. Fifth,
0: and he wouldn't, of course, be the last. This then had another migration happening where the, the rich just kept continuing, slithering up 5th Avenue, if you will, then above 59th Street and all along Central Park East. Right. So much so that in 1922, here's a quote from an article um, in the New York Times that said, with the exception of the Vanderbilt block on the west side between 51st and 52nd Street and a few other isolated dwellings, trade had now virtually usurped the blocks to 57th Street. So by 1922, because we're almost at this part of the story, most everything is commercial retail places.
1: But Sachs is still over on 6th Avenue at Herald Square. So what happened here, I guess, was that Horace wanted to move the business over to Fifth Avenue to fulfill, as you said, his father's dream in many ways, Mm -hmm. uh, and looked into the prices of those properties over there because there was a little spot between 49th and 50th on Fifth Avenue.
0: I believe that space was owned by the New York Democratic Club, and right next door to it was a hotel called the Buckingham Hotel, and so they Uh were right next to each other, but that was the lot that he wanted.
1: And it was too expensive. Of course, part of that is the fact that the Democratic Club was controlled by Tammany Hall, and they were asking too much money. Surprise, surprise. Well, that's yeah.
0: It's hard to wrest that out of their hands.
1: And Sachs just didn't have the money. So what did he do? He sold the company. This is amazing. This is this is the best part of the story for me. <laughs> I'm so glad you let me. Oh, say. okay. He sold the company to his competitor, Gimbal Brothers, which was also next to him at Herald Square, effectively merged Gimbal's with Saks and used Gimbal's money to buy the land on Fifth Avenue and open a new Saks. So I know this is a little confusing and I'm still getting my head around it, but at one point then there were two Saks, one on Fifth Avenue, and one on 34th and 6th. So both stores were really owned by Gimbals, but they were operated as separate businesses. And the store on 5th Avenue was selling different merchandise from the store down on 34th Street. And they named that store Saks 34th Street, and they named the new store up at 49th and 5th uh, Avenue, Saks 5th Avenue. Avenue. Okay. I
0: wonder if Andrew would have liked this idea, because it sounds like it's tricky. I mean, it worked as- eventually, but...
1: I think he would have liked it because even Andrew, back in the old days, he still had his money even before he came to New York. He had his fingers in the pots of other department stores as well. He was silent partners in other stores. Yeah, he, he had, knew he had, how it yes. worked, you know. So, I think he he could see the so the this upside. A, this was this.
0: a trick out of his own playbook. So the, the Fifth Avenue store then, which opened in 1924, it was designed by a, an architectural firm called Starrett and Van Vleck. They actually are the go-to guys for building department stores in New. York. They built the flagship stores for Lord and & Taylors and Bloomingdales wow. and Saks.
1: They're all built by the same guys. So it opened in 1924. And what did people see when they came for this grand opening?
0: The facade was in this art Moderne style, which was which had sort of the flash in the pan hot style of the moment in 1925 because of the Paris Expo. And it also had big luxury windows like many of the other department stores. Some of the first things that were in some of the windows back then were wrapped. Lacoon coats. Very roaring 20s. L- l- very roaring 20 muffs that you would wear while you were driving, your driving coat.
1: Right, driving an automobile, one of those newfangled concoctions. right?
0: Unfortunately, though, Horace did not... So this was his brainchild, but he really didn't live very long. He, in 1926, just two years later, he died of septic poisoning. I
1: do how awful
0: so it kind of falls out of the sax
1: hands and falls into the hands of a gimbal am I correct right but Bernard Gimbal also died in 1926 so it's a rough patch there for a while the And he was
0: the head of the and he was the head of the whole of of the the gimbal right
1: operation so the control then goes to his cousin Adam Gimbal Adam had the idea to take things national. He really wanted it to get bigger. Even though there were gimbal stores in Madison, Wisconsin and Philadelphia, he wanted to really make it upscale. Well Adam Gimbal,
0: yeah, turn Adam Gimbal turns this into um, a nationwide brand.
1: Right. And he also decided that when they were opening new Saks locations to keep the Fifth Avenue in the in the name, which was a pretty good clever early branding device, really, because Palm Beach, Florida 1926 would get a Saks Fifth Avenue, two years later in Southampton, a year later in Chicago and Miami Beach, and it continued to expand and open up new locations even during the Great Depression, which was something that Gimbal's would not do. So they were running these two stores differently, and I don't think they were opening any other Saks 34th Streets. <laughs>
0: nothing in that particular style then no it no. just
1: it didn't translate the same way you know <laughs> Um, by the end of the 1930s, there would be 10 locations, including some on the West Coast in Beverly Hills. Well,
0: some of the other things that, uh, that Adam brought to the store, I mean, he really he made it what it is. Display windows used to be where you would display the items that were inside of your store. So you would have a window and it would have like nine or 10 different objects in it, mm-hmm. but it wouldn't have like, it wouldn't be imp- like impressive in some sort of aesthetic sense. So he brought in in 1927, he actually brought in like an architect and a sculptor to help design very simple, very striking, eye-catching uh, displays. And, you know, ever since then, all of the windows at Saks are always so tastefully done.
1: I don't know if they're still done with Architects.
0: People of artistic sensibility, certainly, certainly. Yes. Other innovations included he had little specialty stores inside the store, mm-hmm. so it was almost like a proto mall in a way, just making like individual places, like little brand names, like hopping shop to shop.
1: And of course, that still exists today. He imported I'll meet you at the Clinique counter.
0: It precisely, he um, imported a lot of items from Europe. He was a huge francophile, so he had brought in a lot of Parisian objects. He would have a custom fit departments where uh, people could come in and buy an item and then have it fit for them. He even did this for military officers in World War II. Um, he would customize their uniforms, which Seems vaguely illegal, but he could customize the uniforms so that they would look as dashing as possible. And he would
1: even—you mean like tailor them or tailor
0: them? Yes. And he would. Well,
1: there's if, nothing wrong with that. I
0: mean, you know, cutting off insignias or something—I well, don't it's know. It's
1: not a flag.
0: So he would, and they would even do house calls to military officers. I mean, presumably in Governors Island or you know wherever they were staying. One of the most glamorous things that he brought in, though, was his own wife. In 1931, the in-house designer was his wife Sophie Gimbel, but no one called her that. It was "Sophie of Sachs," was what she was called, and they called her line the Sophie Originals. She had her own high-end floor in the department store, and it was called "Salon Moderne. It mean, it carried her fashions, but all the high-end fashions were on the same floor. In 1940, they brought in probably the greatest talent. Of uh, the Saks House, and that would be a premier hat designer by the name of Tatiana de Place. She was a former employee of Henry Bendel's, and they hired her for the Salon Moderne. She was literally a artist with designing hats, and of course, it was the 1940s. So women, you know, had to have their coterie of of hats. Yes. Reportedly, Um, he told her not that she she shouldn't learn English because she would actually make more money if she would speak French. Um, regulars regulars in her little millinery shop would include Marlena Dietrich, Estee Lauder, and virtually every society lady in New York City. She would work through lunch. She would actually have lunch in Sophie's office and she'd sit there at the door and the moment a customer would come in, she would leap up and drop her lunch and literally attack this customer. She would... According to one source, she would literally force her own preference onto the customer. Um, she would look at them, she would see what they needed, she would throw a hat on their head, and then she would say, "This is hat for you," and would, and then boom, and she would, and they would walk out with the hat because Tatiana knew what she was doing.
1: Wow, it's no wonder that Tatiana was Sophie's choice. <laughs>
0: She was indeed. <laughs> now, just this attention to style, and uh, there was even at, at the time, like, people used to say, like, oh, that's very sex Fifth Avenue. Like, this was a phrase that people right, even yeah. used. I'm gonna, I don't think I want to bring it back today, you know. And
1: again, nobody was saying, oh, that's very sex 34th Street. <laughs> Or
0: anything. They weren't saying, that's very Macy's. But um, it's because everyone <laughs> knew what it meant. Oh, you're Saks Fifth Avenue. Just, it was a certain style. It was a certain right. price tag. But you just since you just brought this up, what did whatever happened to Saks 34th Street? I mean it, it's how long did it stay well,
1: open? Well, as the 20th century dragged on, the store became a little bit run down as did the area around. By the 1950s, Herald Square was suffering a little bit because people weren't necessarily coming through Penn Station the way that they had been. So, stores were getting hit it was also kind of looking obsolete and big and old and clunky in that giant old elevator list <laughs> escalator list yes, neoclassical building there. Well it
0: was just it was looking a little worse for wear.
1: Anyway, in 1965 Gimbel's made the decision to close it and Saks 34th Street bit the dust. However, the store was then transformed into an EJ Corvettes. <laughs>
0: E.J. Corvette? Yes. That was a, his discount. name?
1: It was a discount store. And that stayed around for a while until it was transformed in 1985 to Harold Center. Oh, right. That sort of glass-paneled, mall-ish structure. That
0: with the, the daffies? The Daffys, of course,
1: if you're taking the F trainer the B and D and pull into um, Harold Square, you can come up through that. It's an unins- through the structure. It's an
0: uninspiring building.
1: And just think of its rich history.
0: Graph. I know what's underneath that glass is pulling it down. The you know that was the, where that's where the original the sax old limestone, was, yeah. And now it's a really boring mall. The modern history of Saks is a little rocky, and it reminds me a little bit of Macy's because it starts passing hands at this point. In 1973, it was actually sold to a company called the British American Tobacco Company. People did think this was a little bit of a scandal. They're like, you're selling sacks? That's not very right. Saks Fifth Avenue to sell it to a tobacco company. This company closed all of the gimbal stores. So there's no more gimbal stores after after their ownership. But they did keep Saks. They ended up renovating the the Fifth Avenue store in 1978. Ten years later, that building right next to it, the Swiss Bank Tower, right. uh, was completed. And uh, Saks kind of did a little bit of an expansion into that building as well. The next year, it was sold again for $1.6 billion to the incredibly impersonal-sounding Invest Corp. But here's the thing... I mean, here's the thing is, InvestCorp also owned Tiffany's and Gucci. So, in a way, at least they had good company under this, like, horrifically sounding company. In 95 is when they started the off-fifth stores, the discount merchandise stores that would open nationwide. In 1998, they were purchased by another company. This one, and it's their current owners, (laughs) called... Another glamorous name, Profits. Profits. Right, that's a, with two T's. Is a, this is a regional department store chain. Profits changed their name to Saks. This is actually kind See, of again.
1: Everybody wants that name. Well,
0: and this happened with Macy's too. If you remember, they were bought by Federated, right, and then right. Federated changed their names to Macy's because there's a value in those names, and there's a value in Saks' name, so they changed the name to Saks Inc. Like you said, today there are 53 Saks stores. Um, you know, none of them obviously more glamorous than the New York location. The Saks is always worth a visit, and of course, if you're here for the holidays if, or if you live here, I mean, you have to stop by and see the windows. This year the the theme, the diorama, if you will, well, half of them are gorgeous, one-of-a-kind, really expensive dresses with a winter theme. But the other half, they had this mechanized diorama called A Flake Like Mike, mm-hmm. um, which was which is like a children's book about like a, a snowflake that's different and he's rejected by the other snowflakes and ends up saving the day. And they usually try to do kind of like non-offensive but very well-designed windows and usually with a lot of bells and whistles and things. So, well, anyway, thank you for uh, listening to our little tale of Sax Fifth Avenue.
1: Join us online at boweryboyspodcast.com where Greg will be posting, I'm sure glamorous photos. I have a lot
0: of picture a good a lot of good pictures this week of uh, some early interiors and all sorts of things for Saks.
1: And what the heck? if you're in the mood, write a review on iTunes. <laughs> we always love to read those.
0: Well, and they, and they help us with our ranking and everything and that just gets us more uh, subscribers and it's very helpful. So wow, well, thanks for listening. We appreciate it as always. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you next week. You can start your day off right. When you find a professional on Angie to get your plumbing right first...